You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Well, good morning, UBC. And I have two things to start with. First of all, cannot tell you what it means to say those words. Good morning, UBC. I have hoped, I have uh, stalked, I have uh, prayed, and here I am. The other thing I would like to say to you is it is so, 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 so hot in Texas. (laughs) And if you didn't know that, now you do. Uh, And if you don't think it is, tell me your secrets. (laughs) I'm very excited to talk about this passage in particular today because, as some of you know, I have twins. And like Isaac and Rebecca, I also have a favorite child. That is is absolutely not true. (laughs) I love all my kids the same, all four of them. But unlike Isaac and Rebecca, we actually don't know which of our twins is oldest. Our girls joined our family through adoption nearly two years ago. And when their birth mom went into labor, it was under emergency circumstances. So the priority was not preserving birth order. It was saving all three of their lives. The hospital where they were born says that they were born a minute apart and that twin A is older. The hospital where they were transferred and had their NICU stay says that twin B is older Their birth certificates say something completely different, including different birth times, and their adoption paperwork doesn't match any of those theories. (laughs) You know, but it was strange for me because when I found out with six weeks' notice that we had been chosen to parent twins, I didn't worry about having two newborns at one time. I didn't worry about buying two of everything and the expense that that would be. I didn't have the foresight to worry about simultaneously parenting two toddlers, which has been both wild and incredibly wonderful. I worried about who would be older. I worried about the implications of the older sibling. I worried about growing resentment between the two. I worried that one would try to parent the other because she has a whopping five extra minutes of life experience. And it turns out those concerns were absolutely valid. (laughs) We have been asked who is older more times than we have been asked if they are fraternal or identical. We've been asked who is older more times than we have been asked what their names are. When I shared a story about one of the twins snuggling up to comfort the other while she cried, the person who was listening, a firstborn, cough, cough, my older sister, cough, cough, said, oh, I bet she's the oldest twin. (laughs) Every remake of The Parent Trap, every Double Mint Gum reference, every time a show gives a little nod to the Shining Twins, And every time I think of this text, I am reminded of the dynamics that are on display perfectly between Jacob and Esau, two twin brothers. Two nations, one womb, two peoples, divided, one strong, 
one stronger, one to serve, one to be served, a parent's greatest fear. The lectionary doesn't go into Genesis 27 this year, but that particular chapter reveals that Jacob stole more than just Esau's birthright. He stole his father's blessing. Jacob takes something that wasn't his, the last thing that his father would impart to his children in this world. And he does so at the urging of his own mother. I am not sure what could be more divided than that. So today, our text tells us that Esau came in from working in the field and asked for some of what Jacob was cooking. Rather than giving his brother some soup, Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. (laughs) The firstborn son was entitled to so much, a larger inheritance. They received special privileges in the community. They were celebrated for their role in the religious life of the family. And so this interaction that was already kind of strange is now super, super weird. Esau, who is apparently on the brink of death, is able somehow in his dying state to articulate just how close to death he is. He continually verbally persuades Jacob for the need of this life-saving miracle wonder soup. And Jacob, on the other hand, who is casually making a meal, is terse. He's short. He's demanding. He has the energy and space to engage in a conversation, and yet he doesn't. He doesn't explain his reasons. He doesn't stop to consider the implications, which makes me wonder, is this a premeditated plan? Did Jacob have it in his mind to look for the moment where he could exploit Esau's weakness. One of the most important lessons I've ever learned about reading and applying the Bible is that we can miss the point if we look at the people in the stories as anything more than that, anything more than people. Can't tell you how many hours of my life I've spent slash wasted trying to find the good in any number of extremely jacked-up situations in the Bible. I first started uh, trying to read and trying to understand, as if that's a thing, the Bible, in late high school after a friend took me to youth group. I distinctly remember reading the story of Noah's Ark, which should be more aptly named the story of genocide, and trying to reconcile God's will and this Jesus they were talking about in youth group with death and destruction. I was horrified when I read the story of Hagar. A brown woman enslaved and forcibly impregnated with a child that was never intended to be hers. No wonder everyone kept telling me to start in the book of John. (laughs) Not that the New Testament offered any reprieve, much to poor little 17-year-old Andy's chagrin and dismay. 
gruesome deaths, fiery condemnations, Ananias and Sapphira, and a whole host of conflicting statements about who Jesus will say is in and who Jesus will say is out. What happens after a life that has been spent? The beauty of embracing the weird and confusing nature of scripture is that it leaves so much space for stories of what not to do. We can be honest about the nature and intention of biblical characters, and we can remove this aggrandized, hyped-up version of them from the narratives of God. Scholars and interpreters have long justified Jacob's treatment of Esau under the guise of divine will. They conflate purpose and piety, and they grant tacit moral acceptance of Jacob because his line was the line that became the focal point. Assertions have been made that this twin dynamic at play represents so much more than these two brothers, good versus evil, aggression versus peace, family orientation versus self-focusedness. There's potential that Jacob and Esau represent a shift in the broader societal makeup where the hunter-nomad model had reigned supreme, farming and shepherding, staying close to the tents, was coming into its own. And there are a ton of really interesting theories and interpretations available, like more than probably anybody wants to learn about, so I'll spare you and me. Some that are even so far-reaching that they find their conclusion centuries later in the kingship of David. But what I suggest to us this morning is significantly less academic and hopefully less complex. What if one of the lessons from Esau's life is that sometimes people make impulsive choices? What if one of the lessons from Jacob's life is that we shouldn't exploit people in their weakness? What if there is no good guy in our story? What if there's no bad guy? What if there's just two people whose mistakes have been categorized and cataloged and immortalized for us to read and pick apart and judge centuries later? What if this is one of those stories of what not to do? And totally, we can talk about the implications of the birthright. We can examine the relationship between Edom and Israel. All of the things. We can do all of those things. But we don't have to pick a hero today. And we don't have to assume that God picked one either. We can hold compassion for a man who either did not appreciate, did not want, or did not feel worthy of his birthright. And we can hold compassion for the one who either plotted, stole, or stewarded that same birthright as a result. We can guess at intentions and implications, and that can be a lot of fun. But at the end of the day, what if people just make mistakes 
And sometimes people take advantage of that. There is tremendous hope for me that we don't have to take advantage of that. The mistakes part, unfortunately, that one's kind of uh, unavoidable. And when those happen in our lives, I, I suggest you take my good buddy Ted Lasso's advice and say, I'm just going to be a goldfish. We don't have to exploit people in their vulnerability. We can do everything in our capacity to resource and support. We have the power to do that. We have the power of advocacy and the power to protect. We can actively reject the choice that Jacob made. We can refuse to profit off of others. We can join people in their suffering and we can invite them to join us in our own. And we can be truth tellers about the narratives of harm that we observe, especially those ones that are repackaged and sold to us to appear less costly to the vulnerable and the marginalized in our world. Two nations are in your womb, two peoples born of you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the elder shall serve the younger. That is heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking as a parent of twins. It is, a heart, it is heartbreaking as a member of humanity to hear those words. Heartbreaking, but not the final chapter for Jacob and Esau or for us. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house, wait for it, of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. It's Isaiah 2, verses 2, 3, and 4. Jacob and Esau's story begins with division. The vision is peace. The vision is unity. The vision is diversity that enriches and uplifts and learns and teaches. There is tremendous hope in hearing the story of Jacob and Esau and recognizing that what is divided can come together. And we get to be a part of that repair. I don't know what would have happened if Jacob would have just said, hey man, I made you some soup. And I don't know what would have happened if Esau would have said absolutely freaking not to Jacob. 
But I do know that I am grateful for the invitation of the Spirit as she prioritizes the wholeness of everyone at the expense of no one. UBC, may we be a people who can acknowledge our mistakes. May we hold space and offer compassion to those around us who make them, and that includes ourselves. And may we hold tightly to the vision of peace, even if the beginnings are division. Amen. As I have come to absolutely love, we now get to practice together the gift of silence. We get to invite the Spirit to come and to minister, perhaps say something new, perhaps correct something I have said incorrectly, which is a wild possibility. And as we do that together, may we grow closer in the unity and peace of Christ.